for today's topic, I know it can be a little bit of a hot button issue when we talk about racism in race. Uh, I know that there are a lot of feelings and connotation around this one word. And take it from me as somebody who has dealt with this specifically myself. I am a biracial person. I am half Caucasian, half Chinese. I have family members, you know, I'm from all different backgrounds, right? And racism is a tough topic to talk about and you know not exactly the most pleasant but it doesn't have to be that way so for our next guest we talk with Bridget Hawthorne she is the author of Raising Anti-Racist Children a Practical Parenting Guide it's actually on shelves already check your local bookstore check Amazon Target and before you totally shut down about the word racism I want you to take a second to reflect, breathe, and really approach this with just an open mind and no judgment. Just listen and see what nuggets you can pick out and see what enlightening moments might occur to you because some enlightening moments definitely happened for me. Hey Slay Nation, it's Heather back with another episode of the So She Slays podcast. Today, I am so excited for this guest to drop some knowledge on us, Britt Hawthorne. She is nationally recognized anti-racist and anti-bias educator, speaker, and advocate. And now we're going to add author to her lovely title with her newest book. Please tell us more, Britt. Thank you, Heather. Thank you so much for having me on Slaying Nation. Super excited to be here. Um, and yes, I have a book coming out, Raising Anti-Racist Children, a Practical Parenting Guide. I wrote it along with my co-author, Natasha Iglesias, and we are so excited and honored to have it in the world. Oh my gosh. Um, I think this is a very key time to talk about this. I think, you know, in the last couple of years, there's been a lot more attention on this subject. And I think a lot of people are scared of it still. They don't want to offend anybody. I know I know from personal experience, when I try and talk to other people about this, it kind of comes from a, ooh, it's an O subject. We can't talk about it. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to make anybody mad. Uh, so let's just take all that away. Yes. <laughs> and let's just kind of talk about this in you know, plain layman's terms. I know your book has gotten rave reviews so far and we're super excited because it does, uh, you know, it touches on some key things that I think we need to start talking about with our youth. So let's talk about these five components that you address in this book. Yeah. So the book right away grounds us in defining our understanding that I, you know, even if you've been in this work for quite some time, we know that the language change and it shifts. And that's something that we all have to lean into and enjoy that fluidity of language. And the reason why language is always shifting in this conversation is because it's always kind of in resistance to discrimination. So I remember when like I first started doing this work, I was using the term um, minority and then I moved to people of color and then I moved to, um, I'm, try I'm trying to remember, I think I moved to BIPOC, black, indigenous, people of color. And now I've landed to people of the global majority, right? So like it kind of keeps shifting and moving so that defining our understanding is all about that language. Why I choose to use the term, um, the phrase white immunity instead of uh, white privilege, especially working with young children. And that is a term that Dr. Nolan Cabrera had coined and um, kind of just grounds us. Then we move into healthy bodies. And healthy bodies is when the part where we say it's a practical parenting guide starts to come in. That's where we start talking about things like fat phobia 
And we talk about body positivity. We talk about the pink tax and the patriarchy. Those are things like with our children, when we are at the store and, you know, I have a 15 year old son now and um, he loves shaving the facial hair that he has. <laughs> and he just is, you know, like we're in the car and he'll be like, mom, did you notice I shaved my sideburns? And I'm like, yes, yes, I did. Right. <laughs> but those are things that like when we're in the store and we're looking at razors that I want to point out to my children, hey, these are both the same brand of razors. Yours are blue and mine are pink. Hmm, that's curious. And my nine-year-old can already say like, oh, why did they gender razors? I'm like, hmm, that is curious. But then we start to look at the, the cost of the razors. We'll do that with body wash. We do that with our shampoo, our conditioner. And so then we start to have conversations like, gosh, if I were to buy all of these things because they made it lavender or they made it pink, how much more money would I have to spend on the same products, right? So those are things that like that um, second chapter all about healthy bodies is talking about. Then we move into radical minds and radical minds is what is it going to take for us to start to have as Heather, you open this conversation, these honest conversations. What does that look like to develop boundaries for ourselves? What does it look like to have advocacy statements for ourselves, for our youngest children? They can say things like, no, stop it. We have a safety rule. We all get to be different. You may go when my turn is done, right? Like those are phrases I am intentionally teaching my children from a young age to use um, and to show up for themselves. And then they also learn how can they advocate not only for themselves, but also for their friends. Um, that's also the chapter. Like if you're saying, how do I actually teach my child about racism or how do I introduce racialized identities? That's going to be radical mind. The next one then goes, because we live in a capitalist society, it's so important that we're talking about how we're spending money and what we're consuming. So that section is all about conscious consumption. Um, it opens up with Aja Barber, who talks right away um, about having ethical practices around spending money. And so we'll talk about like emotional labor. We talk about um, having some guidelines of like, especially in our household, what works well for us is that whenever we're buying something that is a want, but not a need, we really look to support women-owned businesses. We look to support um, Black-owned businesses. We look to support queer-owned businesses, right? So I have this beautiful mug here that I'm going to say that I spent a good chunk of change on that was well worth it because I supported a woman-owned business. Um, and that was really important to me, right? Now for our household, because we don't have a ton of disposable income in our house, there's some necessities, like we just have to go to the box, big box store and we have to coupon. Um, and that's just where we're at. But that chapter is all about how are we spending money? And then the last chapter is about thriving communities. And this is where I like to think of it instead of work, but really play comes alive. And this is where it's like, how can I, with my children, start to have small actions that allows us to be an advocate or an activist in our community? Um, so we have like a writing station in our household. We have like one of those $2 Ikea picture frames. And we have like our mayor, our senator, both of our senators, our governor, we have their name and their address written down. And then we also have like some things that they're in charge of. 
so that whenever our children notice something that's unfair, it's not like, oh, we're just talking about it. It's not that we're normalizing it. It's okay. And how are we going to hold our representatives accountable? Right. So that's all like thriving communities, um, but it's full of scripts and activities. And I'll just, I've, I've been talking a lot now, so I'll create some space for you, Heather. No, 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 no. That's great. I mean, I wanted you to kind of give us a full, you know, outlook on your book, because I think, I think there's a lot of hesitation around this topic. And I mean, offline, I kind of gave you a little background on myself as far as, you know, coming from a majority Caucasian community growing up. And I know to this day, this topic uh, is very touchy and we don't talk about it. And I think a lot of it is because, you know, you don't want to offend anybody, but also at the same time too, nobody wants to feel as if they're quote unquote dumb (laughs) or they don't understand or anything like that. So being able to have a book like this and what you just kind of described is so, I think it is practical. (laughs) It's very practical. You know, it's very practical techniques to implement in your own household. How um, has your family responded to this? Yeah. Well, I have to say, I'm going to kind of go back just a little bit to I want to really acknowledge you being so vulnerable and, and sharing that. Like I didn't grow up having these conversations and same with me, Heather, like I did not grow up having these conversations. I am also biracial, but I'm black biracial. Mm. And so I love how my friend Liz Kleinrock says, and I'm not for sure if it's her quote or not, but I'm quoting her because that's who I heard it from. But she's like, I was not born woke, but I'm really enjoying waking up. Ooh. And I love that quote so much because I feel like that is the journey that I, I am still on and that I will always be on. And so for how my family, I mean, my children, anti-racism has been normalized for them. It's just a way of life at this point. Everything that we do from the TV shows that we're watching, um, this just happened to our nine-year-old. I had to work in DC last week and I brought him along with me and he was in the hotel and he was watching, uh, this really super common TV show and I'm working on my laptop and I'm trying to let it go. I really am. And then eventually I just like turn in my chair and I look at him. I'm like, Kobe, you know, the expectations we have for the kind of TV that you watch. And is this upholding our expectations? And he's like, no. And I go, tell me three stereotypes that are happening right now in this television show. Wow. And he is like, okay, fine. You know? And he like rattles them off. And I said, yes. So I'm asking you to make a different choice that upholds our values. And so he and everything watched like raising Dion or the babysitters club instead. And he's like, okay, fine. But for my children, is this so normalized in our conversations and in the way that we live, I hold them accountable and they also hold me accountable the same way. You know, if I say something that's kind of like an outdated term or if I'm not being really inclusive, you know, and I have my own work to do, especially like around um, transphobia or around ableism, around classism, I like children will just call me out. And my partner, um, I mean, he was raised by a single black mom who just had like a natural, I, I think, I mean, but just like, it seems like this natural um, compass towards justice. So I really do feel like he, is a lot farther along in his journey than I am. So oftentimes like, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, did you know this? Or I'll share something with me. And he's like, kind of the same way with Carter sideburns. And he's like, yeah, 
<laughs> and I'm like, okay, like, I'm okay. Little, so I'm a little late to this party. <laughs> yeah, but all right, we're doing it. So everyone is I'm on board. Um, and I think one thing I really want my children to know is that there aren't going to be taboo conversations in our household, right? That's so and, smart and so refreshing too. Yeah. So we we talk about it. We normalize it. They can call things out and be like, that's racist. Now they're not always necessarily accurate in identifying it, but then like, I'm just, I'll lean into that and be like, Oh, tell me more. Like, what did you think about that was racist? And you know, how was the person upholding a prejudice? And then if they like, can tell me that part, I'm like, and how do they have power in this situation, right? Because like racism really lives in our laws, our policies. It's like, it's what creates a system. It goes beyond someone doing name calling and it actually has to be baked into something. And so they, they're like, oh, wait a minute. Actually, I think that's a random individual that doesn't necessarily hold any power. Then I'm like, yeah, that person's bigoted or yeah, that person, you know, is upholding racism. And I really hope they put it back down we can kind of move on from there. So, yeah, no. And I think it's so incredible how you are teaching these, this language to your children to recognize, I mean, there are very, very few people, very few children, uh, who can actually have that conversation and really thoroughly like think about things and express themselves or identify stereotypes, Uh, A lot of times you only identify stereotypes if you're the one who's being stereotyped. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So and and that's the only way saying this or doing this, like what, you know, and then you're like, oh, I'm being stereotyped. Right. No, exactly it. And so, I mean, it's very, I hope it's not going to be, you know, rare as time goes on, but as in this moment, there is a sense of rarity in these conversations, in this language. And I think, um, you know, it's kind of on people to educate themselves, which is, I hope, you know, they can dive into your book to kind of, you know, help along the way. Uh, I wanted to shift gears a little bit more and kind of go deeper into situations of how to bring up these topics and these subjects, Uh, especially if, you know, you're not necessarily in an environment or have family or friends that are used to looking at things like this because Mm -hmm. it's so easy for them to get defensive. So how do we take the defensiveness out? Mm -hmm. I would say don't start with them. Mm. I think that's, that's something that I had to learn with my own family. Don't start with them. You really want to start working on yourself first And then what worked well for me is I actually, so I was trying to find my people and I found an organization called Montessori for Social Justice. And it's an education organization for Montessori educators, which at the time I was a classroom teacher working in public schools using the Montessori method. And so I like found my people and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to be able to you know, show up like Daisy. I want to be able to center indigenous folks like Trisha. I want to be able to Um, hold systems accountable like Tiffany. Like there are all of these really incredible, brilliant people that I'm just like watching through the window. Like I want to be like them. So I started volunteering and I volunteered with that organization for three years. I used to, people all the time thought I worked for the organization and I'm like, oh no, I'm a super volunteer, but I know it feels like that. (laughs) And so I would say find your people first in your community 
and start doing the work with them. Start then practicing having those conversations. Start by picking up that language. Start by being like, oh, what are you reading? What are you watching? Um, see if they're like doing any kind of retreats. This was a conference. So we got together every year around June, which was really beautiful for a week. So see how you can start to build a community. And then that way, as you're building your community, you are then also reclaiming parts of yourself that you had left behind that white domination had asked you to like erase or invisibilize or to change. And you're starting to be like, you know what? I was listening to your episode. Um, who, what is the licensed therapist name? And it was about imposter syndrome. Oh, uh, well, thank you for listening. Absolutely. Vasavi <laughs> Kumar. Yes. And y'all were talking same thing. And you, I'm like getting ready to go. And I'm like, just, yes, yes. As I was listening to it, because there's so much imposter syndrome that happens with folks of the global majority, with folks who hold marginalized identities, right? Like I'm not good enough. I'm the only one I, you know, haven't seen myself in this way or that I have to change myself. Like, oh, I shouldn't be so loud or bold or take up space. So when you start to find your community, then you start to be your most authentic self. And then you'll know, okay, I'm going to start working on some folks in my family, right? They're also going to watch you change over time. Cause this isn't something that happens overnight. They're going to see what then you're posting on social media. They're going to see the organizations that you're showing up for. They're going to also hear like just around the dinner table, the conversations that you're bringing up. So they're also going to watch you change. And then that's where you start to find, oh, okay, this will be a good conversation. I always think common ground, like always trying to find common ground works. Like if I'm in the car and let's say, um, you know, I'll pick on my stepmom because I, I feel like I always pick on my dad. I always pick on him. You're like, we have to spread it out. Be yeah, I, I, I don't want to discriminate. So I'll pick up my stepmom. Let's say we're in the car and, you know, someone cuts her off and she says a racial remark or racist remark. Then after, you know, I want to make sure we're safe. I will like turn to her and be like, oh my gosh, that was really scary. Like, oh God, I'm so glad we're safe. Like, you know, people out here are so wild. So then we can connect in that way. And then I can go there from there and be like, you know what? I know the way that you raised me was to always treat people with kindness. I know that the way you raised me was to always um, speak good of other people and to make sure that we're practicing fairness. And I just want to name what you just said about them isn't true and it wasn't kind, right? Like that's important for my kids to hear because I'm modeling for them, right? I don't want this work to be performative. I don't want this work to be something I'm just doing on social media or around my dinner table. Like we're whispering about it. It's like, no, this is real work. And then my stepmom can like say what she needs to say about it. It's like, you know what? I don't know where I pick that up. Or I'm, you know, she might say like, oh, I'm going to stand by what I say. And then I can be like, but you do know that's a stereotype. You don't know that person. And there's no like genetic marker for drivers out there. Like mm. we do know that, Right. So at that point, your ignorance is a choice, but I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to like lead with that part. Yeah. Nobody wants, well, nobody wants to be told that they're ignorant. No. I mean that you want, you want to stop before you even start. (laughs) Do that. (laughs) Yes. I've thought it in my head, but I'm like, okay, I just want to clarify for everyone in the car, that there's not like a genetic marker here. And all right now, like I've said my piece, but I think that's really important. You know, we want to try to connect find common ground, 
Um, and I think as we're as kids, like we're so good about using our own parents. Oh goodness. Them, right? Well, and you know what, to be fair, because we are practicing that right now, um, you know, growing up in a rural area, um, and then moving to a city like San Francisco, which is where I moved from a rural area, there was a learning curve for me. Absolutely. Um, I was not aware of how narrow-minded I was until I was transplanted into a different place. And I got to see other ways of life and other people and how other people lived and talked and conducted themselves and got to see and be exposed to injustices, different stereotypes, so on and so forth. I think what makes what makes, I guess, my, my story is not, you know, super original or anything like that. But for me, what made it stand out was that my exposure to people different than me changed the way I began to see the world. Mm-hmm. And when you come from a rural area, your exposure to things and people that are different is very minimum. Mm -hmm. There's not a whole lot. And so during the pandemic, I actually had to move back to my hometown from San Francisco um, to kind of, you know, get away from the city and everybody getting sick. (laughs) Yeah. How was Um, that? That was crazy. Uh, It was an emotional, a little bit of a, you know, I guess I don't, I don't want to like bad mouth it, but it was definitely one of those things where I was just like, wow, you know, I used to look at my uh, hometown through rose colored glasses and I would, I don't get me wrong. I mean, I would go back and visit for a few days, but to go back and live for a year, year and a half, that was something else. And you didn't realize just how small mm-hmm. it really is. And not small in a bad way, because here's the thing is like, I wouldn't change the way I grew up for anything. I mean, I grew up as fast as I needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love my hometown. There's a lot of great things about it. Was it unicorns and rainbows growing up all the time? No. Um, but there was definitely perks that I would not have gotten had I not lived there. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to badmouth small rural towns or farm towns or anything like that, because I'm very proud of where I grew up and how I grew up. But I also realize that the, you know, people that I do know there have a different level of exposure. Yeah. I think, so there's like three things that that's coming up for me as you're sharing your story. And it's one, people will always ask me like, how do we get everyone on board or like everyone on the same page? Mm -hmm. And so professionally, I do this work with educators. Um, I go around the country and I work with educators and developing anti-bias, anti-racist classrooms. And that's really where the question comes up a lot of times. And I always say it's the wrong question because we're never going to get everyone on the same page because we're humans Yeah, and folks aren't in anything, right? Like anything, we're never going to be on the same page. And that's not the goal. Besides, if you're waiting to get everyone on the same page, you are waiting forever, right? Yeah. If Paul Gorski has this quote and he says, if you 
go at the pace of the most resistant person in this work, you're going nowhere fast, right? So instead, what we want to do is we want to focus on the people, like, and you've identified the people that are willing to listen and work, focus on those people. Because what we know is you need less than 5% of a group's population in order to evoke change. That's it, less than 5%, super small. So focus on those people. Something else that's coming up that I, that I hear you talking about too is, so there's two different themes, right? There's the theme of justice and the theme of diversity. And both themes are very important. For a really long time, we've been focusing a lot on diversity of how do we get a lot of different people together? And we think that will then create change. And what we know is it doesn't always necessarily create change because justice still might not exist in that space. Mm. So whether you have diversity there or not, because folks will tell me, you know, what happens if I live in a white area or my children go to a predominantly white school? We always want to focus on justice. What is unfair? What is fair? And then when we identify something that's unfair, how do we then center justice as an action in this work? And that can exist whether you have diversity or not. And that's a, that's a key difference in anti-racist work versus diversity work, right? Diversity work is how do we get more numbers of different folks together? But then what does diversity workplace tell us? We don't retain people. Mm. right? Same thing like in education. We have all of these initiatives to try to get educators of color into teaching. We get them. They leave because it's not a safe space. Justice doesn't actually exist. So we really want to focus first on justice. How do we make this a safe space, a safer space, a brave space? And then from there, we can start to do some diversity work to get people that are different in that space. So I like, I hear all of these things wow. kind of, yeah, that's up. so interesting. Cause I know, um, you know, Chauncey, our co-founder, uh, so of, so she slays, she herself, I mean, she, she is a black woman in tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know she's experienced some of those things where the promise of diversity and all this kind of stuff, but then the diversity gets there and then, you know, give it, give it a little bit of time. And she's like, I, I don't know if I can do this, like A, B, and C, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have never like separated the two, but that that's an honest to goodness, you know, point right there. Yeah. And I, and for me, because in education, most, most educators are operating out of a diversity or multicultural framework, which says that it's okay for us for a short period of time to learn about another culture. But then that means that I don't actually have any language for who I am. And it also means that who I am is the dominant identity, right? And so that's how come like this right now it is um, in our home, we're learning about Asian, American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander, um, Pacific Islanders. And so one thing that we're working on identifying with both our 15 year old and our nine year old is in how much in children's media, there's this constant perpetuation of the othering of those three groups. And so I like check some books out from the library. And these books were um, very, very common children's books that have Asian Americans represented in them that most classrooms have. 
And I'm just saying like, what do we notice on the first few pages? And so my children are like looking through the book and our, my 15 year old had identified it first. And he was like, they all start with a like similar phrase, like in a far, far away land or like over the ocean. And I'm like, yes, that's like this before you even got into the book, we're already like othering or distancing ourselves. So what could we do with this book to rewrite it so that it would actually be inclusive? Because the thing about it is we have Asian Americans that live in this country. We have Asians that live on the continent of Asia and we have Asian Americans that live here. But like anytime, whenever I go into a classroom and they'll show um, it could be like Southeast Asians. It could be folks who live in um, South America. Uh, it could be Indian folks. And they're like, oh, look, you know, they'll have like a little um, doll or, or a little mm-hmm, icon, mm-hmm. right? They're like, look at this person and look at what they're wearing. And they live in this country. And I'm like, mm, they live here in the United States. Like if you just go to a coffee shop, you might see someone wearing a sari and we don't have to go over the ocean to find them. And so like every time I'm working with educators and I say that they're like, oh my gosh, you're right. And I said, because you're so focused on a diversity framework of trying to like, it's a faux way of, of being inclusive. It's, you know, it's not real instead of really just focusing on justice of like, what is fair and what's unfair and children as young as four years old can start to tell you. Oh goodness. I know I have nieces and nephews and they like to tell me all the time that things are not fair. Yes. I don't want to have to sit at the children's table. I want to sit at the adult table. That's not fair. Right. Exactly. I want a later bedtime. That's not fair. Like they are identifying it and you can be like, Oh, well, what about it's not fair? How is it harming you and who's causing the harm? And if they're like, Oh, well, I guess going to bed at nine o'clock isn't harming me. It's helping me. Okay. It's not that's actually fair, right? There you go. But if they're like, this child keeps budging me when we go down the slide and that's harming me, right? Then it's like, oh, you're right. That is unfair. And who's causing it? And then what can you do? You can say like, no, you may go when my turn is done. And then like, take your time, go take your turn, go down the slide, right? Oh my goodness. Okay. So I know just to backtrack a little bit, um, you had mentioned, you know, a little bit ago that getting everybody on board is not the goal. Mm-mm. What is the goal? So the goal is for justice to exist. And so right now we have laws and policies that are unjust. We have things that aren't fair. So let's just think about like um, ability and disability, for instance, right? Yes. For a long time, we did not have any kind of laws for businesses or for schools to say that you have to have a certain amount of accessible parking spots or that you would have to have an elevator that is working if you are receiving federal funds, right? For a long time, we didn't have those. And people were all okay with that because a lot of people felt like it didn't affect them, Mm -hmm. right? Non-disabled people were like, it doesn't affect me. Then now what we do is we have just laws and policies saying, oh, no, 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 no. You actually have have to have some accessible parking spots. When possible, you have to have an activation switch. You have to have an elevator. If you're receiving federal funds, um, and then there's some states that have their own kind of state laws, right? Now we still have people that will say, oh, these are too many accessible parking spots, right? Like that's not fair. 
everyone is still not on the same page about those accessible parking spots, but we have them, don't we? And that is the goal. The goal is to say, how do we create laws and policies where justice is going to exist, even when we don't have everyone that's on the same page about it, right? I might be in the car with someone and they might complain about, look at all these accessible parking spots. And I may then recenter the conversation and be like, gosh, you know what? At any point in time, any of us could become disabled and any of us may need to use one of these accessible parking spots. And I am so thankful that they have them. So I may like recenter it. And because it's not up to me as the individual, it's a law that's been passed, we all abide by it. And then, then that becomes the culture. Once you have a law and then that law becomes normalized and then the culture changes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh goodness. Okay. I feel like you and I can, I can understand why you travel so much and teach in so many different areas, because I feel like this is a conversation uh, that can go on for quite a long time. And I think, I mean, just in our short amount of time that I, I mean, I've learned quite a bit of uh, ways to look at things. And that's always one of the perks that I get from interviewing people and doing these podcasts is I just get to see different perspectives and um, learn different things. So to kind of wrap this up a little bit, what are some, you know, immediate actions maybe some people can start instilling? Yeah, I'm always going to say start with yourself first because it is a parenting book and people do want to jump right in and start doing that work uh, with their children. I always say we have to reparent ourselves. So start educating yourself, make a commitment for who you're going to follow on social media. And it can be so easy to click that blue, you know, if you're on Instagram, that blue follow button. But once you notice like, gosh, I'm following a lot of very similar accounts and I haven't really noticed my feed isn't full of, you know, um, working class folks or poor folks or disabled folks, you know, those perspectives that are going to be different that I get to see they're sharing a part of their life with me, then make a commitment in my, and what I will do is I'll say, okay, I have to find 10 accounts. I'm going to unfollow and then 15 more that I am going to follow. And then, and I'll notice six months later, right. I'm like back at square one. I'm like, oh gosh, how did this happen again? I found too many minimalist accounts. Let me go back and try it again. So that's really important. Reparenting ourselves after, or not after, but as you're reparenting yourself, start to have conversations with your children to be like, you know what? I learned this today. I'm curious if you already knew it. Sometimes your children say yes, sometimes not, right? But you can just start, like I remember when I had learned through social media by following someone, Syrah, um, and I think her handle, it used to be Confessions of a Muslim Mom, and I think now it's Cyrus Biki. But I remember her, her teaching us, but it felt like me, that you could call it Middle East, but you also could call it Western Asia. And I was like, oh, my mind is blown, right? And so then like, I remember being in the car and being like, hey, this account I follow taught me this. And it kind of shifted the way that I think then about political boundaries. So once you start learning, share your learning with your children and model that humility and model being a lifelong learner that it's never, you never, ever have to be embarrassed because you didn't know, but now you're really proud because you do know. And then from there, start to just have fun with some actions you can have in your household, you know, about uh, making a commitment to redistributing to your local food bank or making a commitment instead of throwing away your toys or your um, gently used clothes 
to say, hey, I wonder if we can find a place that we can donate these, that they can use them and make a commitment, not one off, but say, I'll make, I'll put something in my calendar every three months. We'll do that. Here's a milk crate. We'll throw stuff in this milk crate. We'll go through it to make sure there's nothing expired, nothing that's, you know, tattered and holy, um, that should be a rag. And then we will go together, drop it off. Oh goodness. Okay. Those are some great tips just to get started. How do people get a hold of you and follow you? Yeah. So you can follow me on Instagram at Brett Hawthorne. And if you're looking for some more um, tips and tricks and reminders and strategies, subscribe to my weekend newsletter on my website, BrittHawthorne.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Britt. Learn so much. A few mic drop moments and a few enlightening ones at the same time. Thanks for listening, Slay Nation. Until next time, catch you later.